Hi, it's Jackie, and we're in the middle of a series called Manhood in America. And if you recall, the first episode, I spoke to Carolyn Custis James about patriarchy. And remember, patriarchy is the backdrop, the context of the Bible, but it is not the message of the Bible. She and I talked about how patriarchy is harmful to both men and women. Now, today, we're going to be talking to Professor Stephen Boyd about how boys are socialized and conditioned by and through violence and how that creates men who are lonely warriors and desperate lovers. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome back. I've had the opportunity of working with Stephen Boyd before, and he's a very kind, smart, gentle man. He is the professor of religion and public engagement at Wake Forest, and he specializes in history of Christianity, Christian thought, gender studies, and religion and public life. He's authored multiple books on masculinity, and today we'll be digging into his one book called The Men We Long to Be. And it's in that book that he argues about how patriarchal societies socialize and condition boys in such a way that they become lonely warriors and desperate lovers. Okay. Well, I want to welcome Stephen Boyd, who I've had the privilege of teaching with before at one of the Marcella Pro- summits that we did. And uh, we talked a couple weeks ago. And um, Stephen, you're like, been at Wake Forest 37 years and you're retiring? I am retiring. <laughs> Thank God. Are you excited? <laughs> I am excited. It, there's, a, there's a certain amount of sadness that goes with it, too. You know, the relationships I've had with students and colleagues over the years and people in the community with this particular role I've had. Um, so there's some grief, you know, some letting go, but also excitement about what's next you know, um, and having my RAM a little freer for, you know, things that I haven't been able to focus on um, as I've been teaching full time. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I congratulate you. 37 years at one institution is a long obedience in the same direction. So, and yay for the next season of whatever that may mean for you. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit to you today about your book, The Men We Long to Be. Um, and in that, that book, I, you tell a story about this guy named Ralph. And one of the reasons I wanted you to share a little bit about Ralph with our listeners is because I suspect we have some Ralphs listening. And I find that when people can put words to their experience, they then can kind of have these, aha, this is what's happening to me. So you talk about in your book that we're creating men to be lonely warriors and desperate lovers. And then you give kind of this example of what this looks like through this man named Ralph. So tell, tell our listeners a little bit about Ralph. Well, let me set this up. I don't think I did this when I talked with you before, Jackie. Um, the way I discovered the story of Ralph, um, I was going through a divorce. And, you know, I, I married the president of the Baptist, the VSU, the Baptist Student Union at <laughs> University of Tennessee, where I attended. I was the noonday chairman. She was the first woman president of the Baptist Student Union. Wow. And, and we, we were good kids, you know. We, we avoided, you know, what, what. Bill Clinton would define as sex before marriage. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we, we thought we did everything right that, that we had been taught to do, right? And so 10 years later, after an arduous graduate school, both for me and for her, we just found that it wasn't working, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we weren't even friends anymore. 
and we had always been friends. That's how we came together. So anyway, so we were going through a separation. Um, you know, it was amicable, and in this case, it really was. It's just that we couldn't we to save our friendship, we had not to be married anymore. Anyway, so I'm walking out of the library at Wake Forest University where I teach, and there's this book sitting up called Why Men Are the Way They Are. Um, and it was by Warren Farrell. And, I, you know, I, it just stopped me. And I thought, well, I'd like to know the answer to that. <laughs> because, you know, we had done everything we were supposed to do, and we were very unhappy. And uh, so I took that book home, and I read it over the weekend. It was a big, thick book. I read it over the weekend. And... Um, and my life changed um, because what I, I became aware that um, men have a gender too. That is, mm-hmm. men have a, a, a social role that that is socializing conditioned to be a certain way. And I had never really been happy in that role, I, I, but I never identified it as a role. I just thought it was what you're supposed to be. So, but so I set this up to say simply that what caught my attention first was the story of this guy Ralph um, in that book, in Warren Farrell's book. And it actually, Warren tells the story, and this guy's an actual person. His name is not Ralph. He changed right, his name. Right, right, sure. But it was, a, it was an actual guy in his group. So Warren, by that time, was running men's group. So anyway, so let me just read some uh, some excerpts from this story that's in the book and um, and then I'll just make a couple comments. Okay. So Ralph was a 41-year-old man in our men's group. He was married, the father of two children. He had been in the group for three months and had hardly said a word. One evening, he looked up and said, I think I'd like to speak up tonight. I'm afraid I joined this group only because my wife forced me to. She got involved in one of those women's movement operations and started changing. She called it growing. About three months ago, she said, Ralph, I'm tired of having to choose between a relationship with you and a relationship with myself. Pretty fancy rhetoric, I thought. Then she added, there's a men's group forming that's meeting next Tuesday. Why don't you get involved? Um, and so he did get involved. And then he never said anything in the men's group. You know, and so after about three months, um, his wife, Jenny, um, said, you know, if if you don't get involved and start doing something about yourself, I'm, uh, that's going to be it for us. Um, um, so he, that night at the men's group, he said, um, Jenny said that I need to speak up, so here it goes. And he said, what struck me about the group is that each of you chose different careers, but you worried about succeeding. Even you, Jim, even though you're unemployed and have a laid-back facade, that started me thinking about my career. All my life, I wanted to play baseball as a pro. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was pretty hot stuff, and my uncle came and scouted me. Later, he said, Ralph, you're good, damn good. And you might even make the pros if you really work at it. But only the best make good money for a long time. If you really want to be good to yourself and make use of your intelligence, get yourself a good job, one you can depend on for life. I was surprised when my folks agreed with him, especially Dad. Dad always called me Ralph who pitched the no-hitter. Dad stopped calling me that after that conversation. Maybe that turned the tide for me. Anyway, I was proud of myself for making the transition. So he stopped playing baseball. Yep. And then he said, "What am? What can I make a you know a good living at and take care of my family, etc. For you know over the long run?" So he said, "Well, I aimed at getting at a top-notch university. So I played the system and got into a good school. But then my focus changed to, well, what kind of graduate school or professional school do I need to go to? So I decided on law school." And then he was hired as a junior associate at a law firm. After a couple of years at the firm, I was doing well, but the whole atmosphere was that um, 
if you don't continue on in the process, you'll be left behind. So it took seven years to get the junior partnership, but I got it. Then he realized that, that unless you're a senior partner, you're just not taken seriously. It took eight more years to get the senior partnership. The day he got the senior partnership, he came home early so he'd have time to spend with Jenny and sit wine together. So he, she opened the door. He said, guess what? She said, what is it, Ralph? I said, I got the senior partnership. She said, oh, fine, that's great. But there's lots of distance in her eyes. So I said, what do you mean, oh, five? I've been working since the day we met to get this promotion for us, and you say, oh, five? Every time you get a promotion, Ralph, Jenny announced, you spend less time with me. I guess I just wish you'd have more time for me, more time to love me. Why do you think I've been working my ass off all these years? <laughs> if it isn't to show you how much I love you. Ralph, that's not what I mean, that's not what I mean by love. Just look at the kid. He said, well, I did look at the kid. His oldest kid, Randy, was in college, and he had to admit to himself, I don't know whether I'm his dad or his piggyback. Mm. Ralph Jr. was still at home, and he thought he'd try to change things, and so he went in to his room and said, well, could you turn off the TV and let's talk? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> anyway. So, you know, Ralph Jr. turns off the TV. We talked baseball, and I told him about some of my day's pitching. He said, I already told him. He told me about some of the activities, and I spotted a couple areas where I thought his values were going to hurt him. So I told him. We got into this big argument. He said I wasn't talking with him. I was lecturing him, spying on him. We have hardly talked since. I can see what I did wrong, boasting and lecturing, but I'm afraid if I try again, he'll be afraid to say much now, and we'll just sit there awkwardly. And if he mentions those values, what do I say? I want to be honest, but I don't want to lecture. I don't even know where to begin. And then he grew quiet. And someone prodded. Ralph, is there anything else you're holding back? Well, Ralph said there wasn't, but his assurance rang false. We prodded. I guess maybe I am holding something said hesitantly, I feel like I spent 40 years of my life working as hard as I can to become somebody I don't even know. Wow. Working as hard as I can to become somebody I don't even like. Uh, that got me then, and it still gets me. Um, and oh God. Uh, when you talk about so in a in a way that story became a kind of it's kind of paradigmatic for me. Uh, I read it when I was probably thirty five years old. I um, <laughs> I had quit. I was a good athlete in high school. I quit athletics in high school because I didn't think. I mean, I'm six feet tall, and I'm not John Stockton. And uh, you know, I don't have a future in professional basketball. So I played basketball, baseball, and football. Um, and I saw, I looked at other guys in high school who were very good athletes, but didn't even get scholars, uh, scholarship. And I was just a so-so student. So I decided I don't want to end up that way. I want to essentially earn money for a long time, um, a good living. And so I started studying. I started basically doing my homework in high school and went to University of Tennessee, was pre-med, and that was the plan, is to go to med school so I could make good money for a long time. Um, and so by that time, I'd been, you know, I, I decided to switch into um, history. I went to divinity school an Ivy League Divinity School, uh, did a master's and a PhD there, and then um, you know, was married. I have to, I have to interrupt. I'm guessing that the Divinity School was Harvard? Yeah. I know that because yeah. the only time someone doesn't say what the Divinity School is, is Harvard. <laughs> Do you know that? 
No, I didn't know that. But if you look around my office, my degree is not up. Yeah, I just figured because yeah. I've actually I've gotten used to people when they tell me they are going or they're going to school, you know, an Ivy League up in Massachusetts. I chuckle. I'm like, Harvard. They're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> people no. who go to Harvard don't well, tell Jackie, people they went to Harvard. <laughs> no, Jackie, that's interesting. And I have other colleagues who went to Harvard. That's the first and only thing you know about, mm-hmm. which I sort of I just sort of react to. Good you know point. What I'm Good so point. I, yeah, yeah. I go. I go in the other direction. You go the I other direction. direction. Yeah. Anyway. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just had to chuckle because I thought, oh, he's not saying. So I no, know what it is. No, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> so I mean, you work your ass off to get there. You get work your ass off to get through it, and then it's not something I even want to talk about these days. Mm. You know. It, I mean, mm. it, it's just fascinating. Anyway, but so you know, and then I get, I get a good job here at Wake Forest, you know, this is where I teach. I've been here 37 years. And, um, the state of my marriage was, let's just say not good. Mm. And, and I think that book helped me understand, you know, Jackie, it was all her fault. Of course. I mean, our divorce was all, exactly. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, who wouldn't want to be married to me? But here's what the book did. <laughs> What the book did was it showed me what I didn't see. I didn't yeah. know what I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know how much ram, how much attention went into what I felt like it took to succeed in those contexts. Yeah. You know? And what we're really and, talking about is is how we socialize boys, right? I mean, the truth yeah. is boys need to produce. They need to get good income. That's what's that's the value of men in America, right? Manhood in America, one of the things that we socialize men to be is excellent providers. And if not, there's a tremendous amount of shame wrapped around that. I want to I move us into something you say in your book, which I think is fascinating. Carolyn Custis James pointed out kind of the same thing in hers. Um, I've read it in other books on masculinity, but this idea that our boys are socialized by and through violence, which I think is a huge statement. And I would love to unpack that a little bit with you. But before we do, let me just say this. I I do think we have people listening who actually do believe that men are more aggressive, men are more violent. It is just part of the male DNA. And I remember being with a, a, a senior pastor who was actually a pastor over nine different churches, and all of those churches are Acts 29 churches, which have kind of hyper-masculinity teaching. But he and I were together over one of the summers, and he he and I were talking about gender roles and socialization, and he said to me, well, come on, Jackie, don't you really think that men, you know, like men used to go to war, and we're always in war, and so now we don't have that. Well, I think he's being selective of what country he's in, but now we don't have that. So like we do things like play football and you don't see women doing that, right? Like there's this, he, he would argue that men have the propensity to be aggressive, to want to fight. And that's why they go to war and play football, I guess is what he would say. And I remember him like telling me this and I'm thinking, well, that sounds somewhat right, right? We, don't, we know that men have higher levels of testosterone overall and blah, blah, blah. But I started thinking, wait a minute, Jesus didn't play football. And he also didn't go to war. <laughs> so, you know, and he's the only one that shows us what it looks like to be appropriately human. So I'm thinking, eh. And if we look at one of the acts that Jesus did, which was such a, the most instrumental act was to go to the cross and die on the cross. And I think to myself, that was an act of passivity an act of humiliation. That was not an act of aggression. That was not a fighter. You know, that was not rising up and protecting. And so, I, you know, I hear that, but I'm not so sure I buy it. And one of the things that you say in your book, and I, I love this, and I want the men who listen to this podcast and the women too, but I want you to hear this because I think it's beautiful and hopeful about the um, innateness of maleness. You say, we men are not inherently or irreversibly violent, relationally incompetent, emotionally constipated, and sexually compulsive. To the extent that we manifest these characteristics, we do so not because we are male, but because we have experienced violent socialization and conditioning processes that have required or produced this kind of behavior, and we have chosen to accept, 
adapt to these ways of being and thinking and acting. Whew. So what do you mean when you say that men have been socialized and conditioned by and through violence? What does that look like? What do you mean when you say that? Well, gosh, I mean, it's everywhere. It's just everywhere for us. And, you know, I think one of the first things that <clears throat> drew your attention to this book is, you know, my talking about what it's like for boys to grow up in this culture. And and I think it, it may be, it's not completely invisible to women and to mothers. Um, they notice it, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, we really get a heavy dose of it. So, I mean, I would just go back. What are we, you know, <clears throat> how are we conditioned? We're supposed men are supposed to be physically strong, hard, tough, aggressive. Um, how do we learn that? Mm. How do we learn that that's the expectation? Well, <clears throat> you get hit with the baseball. What do you do? You don't cry. There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> Some would say in a league of her own. You don't cry because if you cry, um, if you show that you're hurt, um, then you get ridiculed, mm. uh, which is a form of violence. Uh, you get ridiculed, verbal violence, or you might get humiliated, um, which is sort of a step up from ridicule, or you might get beaten up. Right. Um, because, you know, young boys who act that way, that is, who show their vulnerability, show their emotions, show their feelings, um, face an escalating form of violence, verbal uh, humiliation, then even physical violence. And so why do, you know, later when, say, uh, if we're heterosexual, we identified, if, if a partner asks us, you know, what are you feeling? You know, if if I knew, I'd tell you. <laughs> I, mean, this, this, I mean, this is decades of conditioning that, you know, if I, one, recognize it and acknowledge that I'm hurt, for example, um, and if I express it, I face even more hurt. And so we're not stupid, you right. know. Despite what many people think of us, we're not stupid. We know how to survive. And if if responding this way, if feeling our emotions and our physical um, sensations, if that gets us into trouble, we just stop doing it. Right. You know? And so after a while, you can't even do it anymore. Um, and so it's not like we're being disingenuous. Oftentimes, it's we, we just don't know. Um, what we're feeling. And so in, in many, whether, you know, relationships with girls, you know, at a certain point for guys, you know, we have play dates with girls and stuff like that. That's all fine. But, you know, once you approach puberty, if you spend t- too much time with girls, you're assisted. You know, if you spend too much time with other guys that isn't like activity related, you're a fan. Um, and here it goes again. It's escalating levels of violence. Um, and so why do we have trouble having close relationships with women? It's because we were punished for it. I mean, we were, we were intimidated and physically punished for it. So we learned not to do it. So to, to go back to one issue that, that, that oh my God, on a college campus, uh, I have I have dealt with this for the 37 years I've been. Um, guys are just sexually compulsive. They just need it. Yep. And women play them and et cetera. And so if you cannot develop an intimate relationship with a, with a, a female uh, without being ridiculed, humiliated, even, even beaten, um, then you learn not to do it. So you learn not to um, develop intimate relationships with women. And and intimate, I mean, not just sexual relationships, but emotionally intimate, uh, intellectually intimate, you know. 
So if I do too much of that stuff, I'm a sissy or I'm, you know, I'm a fag. Um, if I do it with guys, I'm a fag. If I do it with girls, I'm a sissy. And so we, we learn that we can't really have relationships with girls. The only kind of relationship we have with female is a genital, genitally sexual relationship. Yep. And if for many of us, since we don't have relationships with, you know, intimate relationships, uh, that are touch, physical, et cetera, with other guys and with girls, then we become touch deprived. And so all of the needs that we have for touch, which are extraordinary. I mean, babies die. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, it's extraordinary the, the need we have for touch. So all of those get focused into one relationship. And if we're het- heterosexual and, <clears throat> anyway, yeah, let me let me ba- let me back up on that just a little bit because that was profound yeah. for me when I read your book. This idea of being men being touch deprived, um, right. because you talk about the fact that you know little boys are allowed to go over to l- little girls' houses and have yeah. play dates and all those kinds of things until they hit pre puberty, and then they're not allowed to touch a girl unless they're getting something, right? Like you use the word, yeah. uh, are you getting? And and men start to socialize each other, right, to teach them that the way you. Um, engage women now is you sexually objectify them, right? This, are you getting any, right? You know, like getting what you ask, which I think is a funny, and, and you say this, you say the language is telling food, animals, and body parts. We call them honey, sugar, fox, chick, piece of ass. Languages shape our view of sex in object, objectified terms and take note of how this language defies, degrades, and dehumanizes God's Imago Dei. And I remember reading that whole section and you talked about how boys at preteen, like they really can't touch other boys anymore either, or they get called gay, right? Like they be seen as effeminate, which is a no-no for for masculinity. And then if they touch girls, you only touch them if you're getting something or trying to get something. And so you talk about how men from that point on become touch deprived. And I was blown away by that concept. I have told so many people that, but this is how, how much it impacted me. I, I was so saddened. I was so grieved at creating a situation where men cannot be touched. Cause I agree with you. Touch does all kinds of healing. You know, it has all kinds of just connected knownness tied to it. So I went to Steve, my husband, and I said to him, honey, I just learned this and I need to apologize to you. Um, I, I'm mortified that you were raised as a young man without the freedom to touch. And other than it being identified with some kind of sexuality, whether it was male or female, I said, I just, I'm so sorry. You know, like how, how can we how can I give you the freedom to feel like you can touch without it being uh, attached to anything sexual? You know, me, other women, men, you know, like, you know, when I'm in Africa, it's so funny, Steve and I will go to Africa and the men there, they hold hands. And it was so interesting when we took our young boys and um, they were probably what, I think 12 or 14 at the time. And, and the right. guys just grabbed my boy's hands and starts walking with them. And I could tell my boys look back at me like, Mom, are we good with this? Is this and I'm like, it's fine. This is not about homosexuality. This is not about some older man taking you over. This is, this is normal behavior, right. you know. So I there's no stranger love, danger, right? <laughs> there's no stranger danger here, and mom and dad are right here with you. Um, but it was just really foreign for for them to have another man affectionately touch them and it not be associated with sex. Pathetic. Yeah. So what you know? So what happens is, you know. All of those needs for intellectual intimacy, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, all of those get directed into one relationship. Which is? That, which is, again, if we're heterosexually identified, which is, for a man, it's one woman. Right. So, you know, by the time they get here to Wake Forest, the guys, there's a tremendous, it's almost like I would, I would describe it like a pipe, you know, like a conduit or a pipe. And, you know, you open the floodgate, but there's a very small, you know, 12-inch pipe through which the water's going to come. And the water pressure is enormous because 
And that's what it's like to be on the other end that's of right. a guy who, who is emotionally, uh, intellectually, physically, sexually deprived. And finally, he's got a woman with whom he can be intimate. And, and the intimacy, unfortunately, is focused on genital sexuality. That's, that's why so many women here in, in, in Wake Forest, their first sexual experience is date and acquaintance. Yeah. Because the guys, and <clears throat> do I blame them? Do, 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 yeah, yeah, it's their responsibility. Um, they, they are responsible for what they do with their, with their genitals. Um, but the sad part of it is, is that this conduit has, you know, has water at enormous pressure. And I don't think either the young women or the men know what to do with that. Yeah. Um, don't even know it's there until it causes harm. And right. oftentimes it does cause harm. Sure. Well, and I'm even thinking so about in- so many women I minister to who, um, their husbands are emotionally, you mentioned this, they're emotionally unintelligent, if you will. They, you know, I, I've done that to Steve. Well, how do you feel about that? And then he starts to report, right, uh, what, he, what he's going to do about it. And I, I always stop him and go, I appreciate all that you're going to do about that. But my question was, what do you feel about that? And he would, and he would give me this stare blank look like, I don't, I feel I don't I don't know you know so we have we are raising our boys to be emotionally unintelligent not because it's part of their DNA because we're actually suffocating and telling them stuff it down don't don't even touch be in touch with your emotions the only emotion we let boys have is anger and jealousy and then they get married right and now supposedly they're supposed to enter into this vulnerability and knownness and share what they're feeling except they don't know it's not they can't access it. And so it causes all kinds of issues in marriage, you know, all kinds. I see them. Um, I love Nate Pyle says this in his book, Man Enough. He says um, this about men and their relationships. If men are unable to be weak, they will be unable to be vulnerable. And if they are unable to be vulnerable, their relationships will lack intimacy. And if their relationships lack intimacy, then men will suffer from chronic loneliness. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. One of the people I I, I teach Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman, for those who don't know him, was a mentor of Dr. King. Dr. King used to carry his book Jesus was disinherited around in his pocket. So he was a mentor for a generation of civil rights uh, leaders. Anyway, and Howard Thurman was a mystic pastor, first chaplain at Boston University, but He says this, that the drive, the desire for reconciliation is based on two basic human needs, the the desire or the need to know another and the desire and the need to be known by another, Mm -hmm. to understand another person and to be understood by them. You know, um, that, to my mind, is one of the best descriptions of aspects of the image of God that I know of. Me too. Um, we we want to understand others and we want to be understood. We want to be held by others in their understanding, in their embrace. It could be physical, intellectual, uh, etc. And so, you know, for him, this um, conditioning and socialization of men is really inhuman. Yes, I agree. Um, it, it's anti-human. And it, it, it prevents, it gets in the way of our developing into our full humanity. And therefore, it, it inhibits us making more. I mean, we make many, many wonderful contributions to this world. I really believe men do so much good. But there is so much more good we could do um, if we were in touch with our need for others, our need for women, our need of, for for white guys, our need for people of color, our you know is heterosexually identified guys, our our need for LGBTQ plus folks. They have so much to teach us, and we need 
they're understanding and we need to understand them. And so, you know, one of the things I admire about your ministry, Jackie, is that, um, you know, you insist, you insist on knowing and being known. That's right. <laughs> as a man, you know, as, as a man, as a man, some, I'm afraid some women kind of give up on that. Mm. You know, they give up, they give up on that, that. I, you know, it's not been my experience that men want to know me, that men want to appreciate me, um, not just have sex with me, but but they want to know me. They they want to make room for my gifts in the world. Um, and uh, what I like about you, one of, of, of many things I like about you is that you insist on that, <laughs> it, as you should. No, as you should. As I should. That. That's exactly right. Well, you know, you mentioned yeah, that. I was... So, at- I was at a dinner party recently and uh, with a bunch of people I only had met online. And so we got together at this dinner party and this, I I had known that I wanted to get to know this man at the dinner party because online he always did the zoom with his, in his library and I could see his books. And I decided Mm -hmm. this is a man I really think I'm going to like. I like the books he's reading. (laughs) So we go to this dinner and I say to him, I mean, he's never met me. And I say to him, hey, I know this is going to sound really out there, but would you be willing to have coffee with me? I said, because I actually saw your books. (laughs) You know, he was reading all the really smart classics. And I said, I'd really like to pick your brains about why you read those books. And I, I didn't know if he'd have the courage to say yes, but he did. And we met for coffee. And I think he was a little leery, like, is there anything behind this? And I'm like, no, I, I actually just want to get to know you. I want to pick your brain. I have a funny feeling you have a brain that would help me, you know? Um, so so we're, we're becoming friends. And I came home and I did a little dance with my husband. And I said, I think I've made a new friend. I've made a new male right. friend. But yeah, I'm pursuing him, the poor guy. <laughs> I'm not well, going to let I, it go. I, I imagine that's kind of a rare experience for him. I bet it is. You know, you know, someone who admires him would like to get to know him, would like to be affected by him. That's clear from what you've told me right. is that you, you, want, you want to be affected by him. Now, if that's a one-way street, that relationship's not going to last forever. Right. Sure. You know, if sure. it's just him affecting you and there's not a mutual reciprocal desire to be affected by you that's just not gonna last very long yeah but but if it is if people you know and that's what's rare you know is for is for men to have those kinds of relationships of course with their wives and and partners that's great but but also with other women um because it's too rare and it and it diminishes all of us you know, yeah. it diminishes women for not having men friends, and it diminishes uh, men for not having women friends. Uh, and then there's this other issue, you know, among men, many of us don't have intimate male friendships um, because it's just too scary. Um, it, it, we, you know, I, the way I describe sometimes two men coming together is that there's it's almost like two, two the same pole of a magnet you know, two plus sides. Right. The closer you get, the more repulsion there is. And that's just, I think, that fear that has been embedded in our bodies and our psyches that if you get too close to men, there's something wrong with you. Mm. It will be condemned. It will be seen as less than manly, inhuman, etc. And I just think many of us carry that around with us. And yeah. so it's very hard to be intimate friends with other men. Yeah, unless the loneliness, the chronic loneliness, the unknownness, right? One one of the things you said when we were talking offline a little bit was just how, I mean, you've been talking gender and race for almost 40 years now. And you said it's cyclical. And so I wanted to know... um, In my opinion, I agree with that. In my opinion, I think we're seeing the conversation of masculinity in America um, as a heightened conversation right now. And, you know, I think part of that comes out of the fact that we had Trumpism being elected and then we had the Church 2 movement that revealed, you know, how much abuse is going on in our churches. Um, And then we saw a lot of 
power and bullying going on by a lot of mega church pastors that got un, you know unfolded before us. Um, recently, we watched Beth Moore leave the Southern Baptist Convention over abuse of male power. And if that wasn't right uh, enough, right behind him, we're watching uh, the gatekeepers go after Kristen Dumez and Beth Allison Barr, which are historians. Um, and they ha- their work happens to be picking at or revealing the underbelly of patriarchy. And I wonder, mm-hmm. do you see a correlation between... Um, how we are socializing uh, men and why it's why this issue of masculinity seems to be spiking right now again because I know it did in the 60s and 70s and then it quiets down and then we had another one again in the 90s and with the promise keepers and that movement and now we right. seem to be spiking again what, what what do you make of that well uh, I'm, I'm trying to look the name of a book that's been really helpful to me in this regard, um, two books. You, you mentioned um, Dumet's book, uh, uh, what is it, Jesus and John Wayne? Yes. I thought she, I think she's very insightful. Um, and she called, she, she describes a, a kind of cultural framework or nexus of, about eight or ten issues that really kind of hang together. And from her perspective, those issues hang together because of um, um, the role of the father um, and the role of the patriarchal father, that is, the one who exercises one-way uh, authority. Another book that I've come across is by, I think his name is John Wainer, W W E H N E R, and the name of the book is The Depth of Politics. He used to mm. work in, in Bush's White House and... He just is, is very concerned about um, the direction of uh, the right uh, and the Christian right uh, because he's part of it. He's an evangelical. And um, anyway, so he says there are three, it, it, from his perspective, um, this move toward a sort of hyper-masculinity is, is um sort of conditioned by four four things that are happening simultaneously. One, the percentage of non-white citizens in America has doubled since 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, white men, white people are becoming less dominant. And in fact, we're no longer in the majority in, in the United States, and it will only increase. Secondly, he says, there's been a notable rise in economic anxiety among middle-class Americans. Essentially, the median household income is flat, and that has caused anxiety. So the first I would identify as sort of racial anxiety. The second is economic anxiety. I mean, these are real things yes, you know, that yes. folks are dealing with. Yeah. And then thirdly, he says there's a rise in polarization between political parties. Um, the two parties are ideological purer and farther apart than any time since Reconstruction. Hmm. Think about that. Yeah. The first time the most polarized since Reconstruction. And we know all know what that was about. Uh, you know, it's, it's our inability to welcome people of color into the body politic, yeah. into our economic institutions, educational institutions, et cetera. And then finally, he says, there's been a rise in con- the contempt toward politicians. Um, and I think there's a contempt for intellectuals. I think there's a contempt for intelligence. That's probably why I don't have my Harvard degree. (laughs) No, It's too dangerous nowadays. (laughs) Well, there's a serious contempt of being reasonable and thinking clearly, do you know, which is what I was trained to do and what I try to train students at Wake Forest to do. I find them receptive to it, but I think in the wider culture, that's become like a dirty word, Mm. you know, intelligence and reasonableness, et cetera. Anyway, so he thinks all of this is is sort of connected to traditional gender distinctions that many folks feel are dissolving, and that makes them anxious. So there's gender anxiety, racial anxiety, economic anxiety, and the answer for some people, not everybody, but for some people, the answer to that is a strong alpha male 
father figure who will defend the way it used to be. Right. Um, and I think that's a, I think that is a rear guard action that is doomed to fail. Personally, that, yeah. that, that's the way I see it. But not without a lot of pain for a lot of people. Um, and so I do, as we were talking earlier, I do think that, that we're making progress. And by progress, I mean we're treating each other with more respect, uh, no matter what our race, what our gender, what our uh, sex. And that's progress to my mind because I see that as progress because I think that's God's intention in creation mm. is that, that we treat each other that way because fundamentally we need each other. Yeah, we and, sure do. and if we don't treat each other with respect, we can neither make the contributions that we only we can make and we can't receive the contributions that only other people can provide for us. And so, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah. Uh, you're cutting off. You're cutting yourself off from resources that you need. Right. Um, and that's just not smart. Yeah, it's just not smart. Yeah. Um, if you had, let me let me end us on this last question. Um, sure. Okay. If you were speaking to the women that are listening right now that have sons, okay. and and men who have sons, what what? What would you want to say to him, to them about raising their sons in America today? Like if you could give them one piece of advice, one thing they might want to consider, just keep in the back of their mind, what would it be? Well, I, I don't have a son. I've got a, a grandnephew that I took to the Wake Forest women's basketball game yesterday. And, and he asked for an autographed ball, so I spent the afternoon, which is one of the reasons I'm tired, Jackie, getting one of those autographed basketballs, white paneled basketballs, and getting the center on our basketball team that I had in class to have her teammate sign it. So she's doing that because they have practice afternoon. Point is, um, uh, pay attention. Uh, don't think you know what's good for you. Let him tell you what's mm. good for you. Let him tell you what his passions are. He's gone from soccer to basketball, and now he's playing baseball. And his dad just supported him, my nephew. And, and, and you know, and I go to his games. So you support whatever decisions they make about what they want to do, what they don't want to do, and how they're going to be around people. And but you know, I have. Also, like four granddaughters, five granddaughters, um, and I sort of treat them the same way. <laughs> pay attention, right? Treat them. What do human? they want to do? Yeah, yeah. What do they want to do? What what makes them you know happy? What makes their heart sing? How are they um, wired? Right, and let them be how they're wired. Yeah. It's interesting. I was. I mean, one people- of my. Yeah, I'm sorry. One of my granddaughters is like just turned eleven. You know what she's been doing the last three years? What? After starting gymnastics and dance, playing flag football. Whoa! Only girl Whoa. and only girl in her league. <laughs> and when when she turns the corner, when she turns the corner and heads up field, nobody can catch. She's her. gone, and she loves it. But you know, I said to her, sweetie. You know, I think this is great, but, you know, when you start wearing pads and all that kind of stuff, um, we've had women kickers. Vanderbilt had a women kicker. And I don't want to discourage you, but I just want to let you know, you know, that that that's kind of the way it is. It's not impossible, um, but, you know, it's tough. Anyway. It's an uphill, war, an uphill um, grind for her to get onto the football for sure. I was thinking one of, one of the things I probably would say is I was thinking about something Brene Brown said in her very first TED Talk that was like what made her famous. And she was talking about shame and vulnerability. And this man went up to her and waited and waited and waited and waited to talk to her. And his wife was mortified. She was in the back of the room and, you know, like, come on, honey, come on. And he's like, no, I want to say something to her. And what he basically said to her is, um, you know, you talk about us men, you know, being vulnerable and being honest and coming forth with our feelings and our fears and insecurities. He goes, the truth is my wife doesn't want to hear it. 
She wants me to be the provider. She wants me to never waver. She wants to know I'm secure. And so I think one of the things that I take from that that I would say is, you know, let's stop expecting our men and our boys to not be human, to not ever struggle with doubt or insecurity or fear or, you know, all of, or, you know, if we want them to be vulnerable and develop emotional intelligence, we actually have to let them instead of telling them to stop, don't cry like a girl. I don't want to hear it. Well, of course you're going to be fine with that. You know, like we need to watch ourselves and ask, are we actually allowing them to be vulnerable? You know? Well, you know what strikes me, Jackie, is that, you know, I did for about 10 years, I did workshops all over the country for men. And here's what I observed is that, you know, they'd read about Ralph and they, you know, they kind of wake up and become aware of what they weren't aware of before. The mm-hmm. fish becomes aware of the water, you know, and, and, you know, and they might consider making some changes, but when they go back home, it's just like you say, the harness fits the way it's always fit. And so with women, my hope and wish and prayer is that um, take a look at, Take a look at what the deal you made in your marriage was, because sometimes those have to change. He may not be, he may not want to do the same thing he sort of implicitly or explicitly agreed to do when you got married. Right. And, and, and same with women, you know that, you know, I'm sure women come to your retreat and do Bible studies and it's like they go home and their husbands don't even recognize. (laughs) It does does cause a little bit of trouble. (laughs) Well, and the point is, the point is, it's not that you don't love each other anymore, but we grow, and sometimes those deals have to change. Yeah, we learn, uh, and we renegotiate. We learn yeah. about ourselves and what we actually were, you know, shaped by and say, oh, I don't want that anymore. This is what I think I'm supposed to be doing. And we, we grow together, right? We reshape together. We remold together. But we have to give each other freedom to do that, to be able to show up and say, I'm not sure how I feel about this. So I love that. And it may be a little, it may be a little bumpy for a while. And Could, okay. Probably will. I'm guessing it probably will. Okay. I have got to um, close us out here, but I do want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've had a long day. I absolutely love yes. chatting with you. And the next time Steve and I drive to New York, we are going to take like a left-hand turn or I think it's a, yeah, a left-hand turn into North, yeah. North Carolina and come see you. Unless you move by then, you know, who knows? You might, you might, you're retiring. You might be shifting. We've got all those grants here. We're going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stop bragging. I got none of them. I got none of them. Okay. 